Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Okay, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Welcome to the program. I have Nick Flynn as my guest today. He has a new memoir out from W.W. Norton & Company. It is called This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. It's a memoir, and it is the official August... I'm sorry, it's the official... Yeah, the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. I forgot what month it is. That's where I am in the pandemic. I've just lost all sense of time. Uh, but This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, the new memoir by Nick Flynn. We had a great conversation. That's coming up in a moment. I want to say again how much I appreciate hearing from you guys. I have been getting a lot of uh, photos sent in by listeners who are participating in the the new game that we're playing where listeners send pictures of where they listen. There's a hashtag. It's where I, like hashtag where I listen. And people are sending in photos from all over the world. And I find this oddly moving. I don't know. It's nice to hear from people wherever they happen to be, but it's crazy for me to think that I have listeners all over the planet. That's the way the internet works. So some people send a photo of a place, some people send a photo of a place, and they send a selfie, whatever it is. If you want to do that, you can DM the show on social media, on Twitter, at OtherPPL, on Instagram, uh, that's at OtherPPL.podcast, or you can email me, the, the address is letters at OtherPPL.com. Just uh, tell us where you are. Send word. So Nick Flynn is my guest today. He is uh, the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. 
You've probably heard of that one. And the new memoir available from W.W. Norton & Company is called This Is The Night Our House Will Catch Fire. It is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here he is, folks. This is Nick Flynn. I, I don't know if I feel lonely um, when I'm writing. I, I think it is that difference between loneliness and solitude. Um, and I think I'm, I mean, I think we have to, you know, as writers, I think we have to, like, just prepare ourselves for long, uh, you know, long stints in the wilderness where we're just, you know, we are alone, but we're also, you know, making something and searching for something. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a journey involved and, um, you know, so that it keeps you going. Uh, that stuff keeps me going. I'm, I'm, I'm a very social person, uh, you know, outside of my writing life. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it. So I, I do I have to do a lot of that, like working on this book. I had to do a lot of like uh, structuring my days so that I would um, uh, make sure I was in contact with, you know, good friends and with uh, just other support network stuff uh, that would keep me going. Uh, you know, it, it, the harder the book, the more you sort of have to I, I have to do that, really. So when you're working. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, I, when I'm working on the book. But this book was this book was. Um, my my work schedule for this book was strange. It was very strange because I, I couldn't I couldn't stay in it for very long because it was so hard. Um, so I would really dive into it for like a month at a time, and a, a couple of those months were away at writing retreats uh, where I would really just work like that was real solitude. That was I'd, I'd really work on it like from sun up till sundown, and uh, and then when I would leave those places, I I wouldn't look at it again. I wouldn't think about it again for like three months. And then maybe I'd, I'd go through the draft uh, and do it again just for like maybe a two week period and then put it down again for like several months. Uh, that's it. And then I would also write um, uh, a lot of the most almost all the pieces in it came from writing workshops I teach. I teach, um, you know, these like week long writing workshops over the course of the year. And I would sort of go I go through the writing process with my students. And a lot of them came from that that process that I do with them. Uh, so th those would be like these intense times of working, uh, generating the material. And then I would sort of then go in for like a month and try to shape it into something afterwards. So your book is, uh, it's an amalgam of things. It's like, you know, I feel like it's uh, bedtime stories that you've told to your daughter or stories about your childhood that you've told to your daughter. There are some philosophical explorations happening. Uh, there is the, obviously the uh, stories of your childhood, um, you know, in the relationship that you had in particular with your mother. Um, it's about a place. I, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing. Is it pronounced Situate? Perfect. Yeah, I, perfect. Okay. So Situate, Massachusetts, where you were raised. Uh, and then I think the heart of the book is about an affair uh, that you had. And you're, you're kind of braiding these things together. And I think in particular, when it comes to writing about something as delicate as an affair in a work of personal nonfiction, I'm imagining that you were trying very hard to make sure that you struck the right balance. Uh, I, I'm imagining, like, projecting my own, um, like, writing instincts onto it. Like, how do you render that without, for example, feeling sorry for yourself on the page? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, did you run up, run up against that? Was that a big struggle for you in the drafting process? Like, can you talk about how you wrote about that and 
found a a, a place of of uh, truth and balance and I guess some restraint. Sure. Um, well, you know that you, you were wondering if I'd come up against some self pity or something in the in the drafts, and I'm I'm sure I did. I, I allow myself the full range of the you know lesser emotions in my drafts. Um, uh, you know, just as a way, and then I look at them, you know, turn them over and look at them and question them once I've written them. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I let whatever, whatever is there come out. Uh, I, I, I try as much to do that. Um, and as, as far as like, you know, getting a balance, like it just, a lot of it happens, just things happen chronologically in some way also in, in this book. My, my daughter, the book began really as like, you know, it's interesting that you say the center of it is the affair. Often, I, I think the center of it is the, you know, the fire, the returning to uh, my hometown. Um, and the, the affair was, you know, it was many things, you know, which are not captured in this book at all, because it, I feel like that was what the the center of it was more the fire that, you know, my mother set when I was young. And to me, the book began with my daughter asking me those questions about what I was like when I was uh, her age, when she was seven, she she was really interested to know what my childhood was like. And, you know, even though I've written memoir before, I'd never, I, I didn't have many memories of that time. And, uh, you know, the one I had was of, uh, you know, this, this hermit that lived in the house behind my, my grandmother is like, it was like a fairy tale. So that's why the, the fairy tale element comes into it. And I was warned if I went near his house, uh, he would come out with a shotgun and shoot me with rock salt, and and, and his name is Mr. Man. Mr. Man, yeah, which was which was the original the working title of the book for a long time, but uh, it, it seemed problematic somehow. Uh, and so, uh, and, and the book was became an exploration of like why I would because I after I heard that he would shoot me with a shotgun, I I decided to spend that entire summer trying to get him to shoot me with a shotgun when I was seven. Uh, it seemed like a good way to spend the summer. Uh, and then, but my daughter, when I looked at her, I couldn't really understand it because she was so tiny. She was like, I was like, why would you do that when you're, you're, I mean, I was, my, my daughter was, you know, like a seven-year-old, like not, not a large person. And like, I could, I could, I couldn't really see myself crawling toward, um, you know, on my belly toward this house where I, a guy who is, I've told has a shotgun, you know, every day <laughs> to try to get him to shoot me. It seemed like not a strange thing to do. It seemed like a strange thing to do. And then it unreleased other, that release, like other uh, memories I had, specifically the fire. You know, our house had had, had uh, caught fire the year before, uh, and uh, so it released that. And then, and then, you know, then you know, decades later, um, I'm with my daughter, and uh, I, I believe if the affair had, had ended at that point, but um, uh, or it had maybe just ended, and it just became like a metaphor also like, you know, my mother setting our house on fire. And then there I was like, you know, years later, metaphorically setting my own house on fire, uh, with this affair. And you were seven years old. Is that right? When your mother set, set this fire? Six. I would have been six. So it was the summer before I, I was trying to get shot by Mr. Man. So I, it's sort of like, it, fe it feels like one thing led to the other, um, that the, whatever, uh, a threat I felt in my own house, uh, it was a way to control that. You know, this was a threat I could control. I could just sort of, you know, I, I felt I could outrun his shotgun. So, uh, so I would, uh, uh, yeah, so that, 
it was just a strange thing to do. It was very strange. I, like I couldn't really understand. Like I mean, some people understand it. A lot of guys I talk to, like when I say I thought the best way I could spend my summer would be to try to get him to shoot me, they're like, yeah, that makes sense to me, you know. But a lot of people, it doesn't make sense to for a lot of people. So I, I got to say, I related so much to your descriptions of Situate and your relationship to nature as a child, and just that strong sense of place, like walking through the salt marsh, playing in those woods behind your grandmother's house, becoming fixated on Mr. Man. When I was a kid, the the weird guy that my you know my buddies and I were all worried about was named Mr. Filter. <laughs> and he, he had this... And like, but I don't think it was quite... I don't know if there was enough like threatening lore around him that had been like confirmed by adults. I think a lot of it was invented by us. He had this big property. He had a riding lawnmower, and he just seemed like a grumpy guy, and we projected onto him all of this like villainousness. And we used to go hide in the little like stand of trees near his house and spy on him and like think that he was going to chase us. You know what I'm saying? Like there was all that. We wanted some danger somehow, yeah, I think. Yeah. It's a little... It's a little uh... Uh, uh, Night of the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird mixed with uh, Chris Ware or something, you know, a Chris Chris Ware, you know, suburban angst thing. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's like I think too, like there's something lucky in growing up where you have contact with a little bit of nature. I guess I'm I'm longing for that. I live right in the middle of Los Angeles, so I'm always thinking about like having more access to trees and stuff like you know for my children and. Um, I grew up with all that. I used to like walk around the woods looking for arrowheads and I don't know. Yeah. I really, I think that you had something similar. It sounds like, yeah, it was, it was the out nature was really a big part of my growing up. We, we grew up situates, you know, a small, uh, town on the, on the ocean, you know, incredibly beautiful town. Like I, I, and I think I appreciated a lot of the beauty. It just felt magical to me, but you know, I don't go back there much anymore. Um, uh, it's a little haunted for me, the town, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a New England town on the ocean where there was a beach. We could walk to the beach and, you know, this salt marsh that I'd walk across was just this mythic space of, you know, where you, every day you'd show up and the tide would have brought in something, you know, strange from the sea that you discover. So, uh, and then the woods were something else. Yeah. The woods were, you know, became mine. I just sort of like, you know, I, I really felt like I owned those woods too. So. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I want to say too, you know, you really render your mother uh, beautifully on the page. Like I find her, as I read about her, to be an incredibly uh, sympathetic character. She, hmm. um, she's a 
young, beautiful woman who had a basically had a very brief childhood and then was immediately into adulthood and motherhood. I mean, she had uh, was it you and your brother when she was eighteen years old? So like, how yeah, old but, was she? When... By the time she was twenty, she was divorced with two kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so so she was probably pregnant when she was seventeen. And so she um, she was raising you guys on her own, and. Uh, when you were six years old, set fire to the house. And this is a pretty harrowing passage in the book as well, where you wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, that's kind of, that's one of like childhoods, uh, you know, I think it's an ordinary fear for kids. Like is, is the house is going to catch fire. And then there you were and there's smoke, um, you know, in the hallway and you're, you're being rushed down the stairs and out of the house. So can you talk a little bit about your experience of it then when it happened and then your evolving understanding of it through the years? Yeah, sure. It, it, it is one of the memories that I had from childhood. Like I said, I didn't have many memories from childhood, but you know, your house catching fire is uh, one of them. And, you know, you know, obvious, I, I, it seems like it's obvious to say that I didn't, you know, it wasn't, my mother didn't tell us that she set the house on fire. Uh, so it was something I found out uh, many years later. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, and when I look back on it, it was a really formative experience just in, you know, psychically, because every one of my books, there's a house on fire in it. There's some moment where there's, that's like the threat. That's like the danger, uh, you know, from my first book of poetry to every book, every book has a, you know, there's a element of fire in some way is manifested. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure that it's, it's really hard to say, like, you know, do kids, you know, I think my daughter, my daughter's 12 now, and I think, I think kids know everything. I think they know. So I probably knew at the time that she had said it, um, you know, but you can't really, you can't really process that. You can't really take that in or process what it means. And even when I was 35, when I, you know, found out from, uh, the boyfriend that she was with the night the house caught fire. He's the one that told me that she said it. Um, uh, even then I couldn't take it in actually. Cause it, it appeared, you know, her setting the house on fire appeared as like a page and uh, probably in uh, my second memoir maybe. And, uh, but at the time when I was 35, I, I, I kind of just admired it. I thought it was a, um, I thought it was a great thing to do because, you know, she was young and she was broke and she got the money. The insurance scam worked and, you know, we all made it out OK. And it was it was all good. It was like a it was a cool, you know, she got over, you know. And then it wasn't until I had a daughter, until my daughter was the age I was when suddenly it hit me. I'm like, whoa, who, who would set a house on fire with kids in it? Like that's a that's kind of that's a little risky. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a risky con, you know. So that, you know, so it, it really, it's very strange. It's strange. It's, it's almost embarrassing for me to say that. Like you think you would sort of know immediately when you hear that, like, oh yeah, someone shouldn't do that. But that wasn't my first response when I heard it. I was like, yeah, that's, a, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what you do. If you need the money, you set the house on fire, you know, and you have to have the kids in the house because otherwise they're not going to believe you, you know? So yeah, it's strange. It was a strange, you know, that, that was hard. That was a very hard, like, um, that was psychically very difficult to sort of come to terms with that. Like that probably wasn't a good thing my mother did. Right. Yeah. You know, which seems strange to say, like most people I think would say like, well, it's obviously not a good thing, but it, to me it wasn't obvious. So, well, I think, 
I felt I felt in reading about her a lot of compassion for her. It's hard to raise kids. It's hard to do it alone. It's <laughs> hard to be working multiple jobs to put a roof over your head. Um, she had she had a, a tough road to go, and she and like you, like we just talked about, she didn't have uh, a long childhood. Uh, I was just having a conversation this morning before we started with a friend of mine where I was saying like I think I didn't really become an adult until my late thirties. Like I, I, I was a, a slow, I'm, I'm a late bloomer, you know, I'm a, I was a slow learner and, uh, I don't think everybody necessarily has that luxury. And certainly generationally, I feel like my parents and, uh, your parents, you know, it wasn't really in their generation an, an option to become an adult in, in your late thirties all that often. So I don't know. I just, I really felt for her and, uh, she obviously struggled, you know, you write about, uh, how she took her own life when you were a young man. And I, I think one of the the more harrowing passages in the book, you, you don't spend much time there, but you talk about when uh, Julianne Moore played your mother in uh, a, a film adaptation of your work, and you went to the set on the day they filmed, uh, you, you know, your, the, the, your mother in the movie taking her own life. And I thought to myself, wow, like that's a interesting decision to want to be there. Uh, did you wrestle with it? Was it something that was an, an obvious, like, yeah, I want to be there to see this? Or did you, did you have to get up your courage? Well, I mean, you know, that's part of the, you know, I don't know if that was, if that was reckless also, like, you know, you inherit, you inherit certain traits from your parents. And, you know, my mother did have a certain recklessness and, but, but, you know, it's also like just sort of basic curiosity. Like I wasn't around when my mother killed herself. I was up at school of the college and, uh, um, you know, I'd worked on the script for seven years with the director and, you know, I, I knew, you know, we'd, we'd gone through the, you know, the, the, the scripting of it, the staging of it. And, um, we only had Julianne for four days. Uh, you know, she appears a couple of times versus, you know, my young mother and then as a ghost later on when I'm, you know, in my twenties. And it was just one of those questions or a yes or no question. Like, would you, do you want to be, and it wasn't a matter of, do you want to be there? Because I was actually on set every day. It wasn't like, Oh, I, I'm going to choose to be there on this really horrible day. Oh, okay. uh, I was, I was there every day and I could have not shown up. The director said to me, you, you don't have to be here today. Um, but I think I would always have wondered like, what it was like, you know, I think it was one of those things I would have always sort of had a, a question, you know, I mean, the answer is it wasn't great, but, um, it was, there, there was something about like the whole making of the film, there was something like really profound about it and really like done with such like, uh, care and, and thoughtfulness. Uh, and all the actors had like such integrity and like Julianne was just so beautiful. Um, she's I, I was, wonderful. Yeah, and I, I was just, I mean, all the actors were really, it was just, they just took it like really, um, you know, it's a strange thing. It's, it's a strange thing to have your life, your the worst ass, the worst moments of your life reenacted by these like amazing actors. Um, so I went, you know, I, I went and, you know, was part of it and it was really, you know, bizarre and, and kind of haunting. And, you know, it also was the beginning, you know, that it was actually the beginning of the affair. Um, was, uh, you know, it maybe wasn't the best thing to do psychically because <laughs> I, I um, uh, you know, it, it did, it did damage me in some way. And I, I turned, uh, you know, to someone else for, uh, support, you know. 
Do you think it was re-traumatizing? I mean, like, was it, I mean, I can't even imagine like the, the, the layering of those experiences that's got to be, and to have somebody like as talented as Julianne Moore acting in front of you. I mean, like that's, that's a rare experience. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in the making of, I don't know if, you know, how many sets you've been on, but you know, the, the making of things are, things are so slow. Like, it's just like, you know, she picks up the gun, like, you know, like for two hours, you know, and she, you know, things, things go really, really slowly and the lights turn, they, they turn everything around. And, um, so it's a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a long, it's a strange, long, boring process and about an incredibly intense moment. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was like re-traumatized or if it was healing, like, in some ways, like I, I felt at the end of it, you know, I wrote a book about it. You know, I wrote the book, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. They based the film on it. And then I wrote a book about being on set and watching it. So, uh, which is the reenactments, the, the reenactments. Yeah. And so uh, in that, like it, I did the next year, like I was always very haunted around the anniversary of my mother's death. Um, I always, I, 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 I guess I still am, but I was, you know, very haunted by it. You know, it's in early December and, uh, the next, the following year, I, I, it was much easier. Like it, it did seem like, I mean, there is some, uh, uh, you know, uh, some belief that uh, you reenact the trauma in order to sort of uh, uh, get through it with, uh, to, to, to allow it to pass through you. There is some trauma theory about that. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Like, and it's, and, you know, this was like a $10 million movie. So it was a very expensive therapy session, but <laughs> so huh? I can't, I can't recommend it to everyone, but, um, right. but I, so I'm not sure. And then, you know, then the next year I could I sort of bounce back to being, you know, a lunatic around her, uh, the anniversary of her death. So it, it didn't last long. So, hmm. uh, I want to talk to you about the way that you work. I think there's a, there's a style that is reflected in all of your books and, uh, you know, it's the fragmentary, it's the, I mean, I think the word or the term poetic memoir has been thrown around in describing your work because you, you know, you also work as a poet and there's a real precision uh, and concision to your work that I admire. But there's also a kind of thrilling uh, sense of assembly um, where I can almost feel that you yourself in the act of drafting don't quite know how it's all going to come together. Uh, like I can feel the discovery. I don't know if that's accurate. Maybe you have a perfectly detailed outline that you're following and I'm completely wrong, but it feels to me like you're following your instincts and you're going down these little paths and then figuring out as you go, how they might meld together and inform one another. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I don't have a plan. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I just write, um, and, you, you know, some, you know, when, when a book finishes, I haven't really started anything else. Well, I guess I have. I've done some writing exercises. I'm, I'm in the space of sort of generating material now. Uh, and what I do is I just generate material for a couple of years until moments or, or, or scenes or, or memories start to sort of gather energy around them. And they sort of it, it's not I don't choose what um gathers energy around it. It's just sort of, it, I, I follow it. I, I let it happen. So when I go back to writing, like, oh, this thing, this thing is rising up again. Oh, it, it already happened over here. There's starting to be a pattern emerging. And I start, I just, I just sort of notice patterns that emerge. And then generally for most, you know, out of the, this is my fourth memoir. And, uh, 
at least three of them were, were done this way, where I find the structure at the end. I just have a lot of pieces and then try to figure out how to fit them together into, um, and it isn't necessarily a coherent narrative, but it's just something that sort of works. So some of them aren't really, like the ticking is the bomb is not a conventional sort of like chronological narrative, like another bullshit night in sex city, which is actually like a very classic, like Aristotelian structure where you characters are introduced and the, uh, a crisis is introduced and then the characters meet and have a bigger crisis and then there's a resolution. Whereas the ticking is the bomb was just this sort of ball of energy um, that uh, where there was these images that just kept getting repeated through the book that sort of kept leading, led to this sort of central mystery. Uh, and, and I should say for people listening, the ticking is the bomb and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing poorly, but this is a book that's about um, perhaps surprisingly both uh, you becoming a father and also, uh, the, the, uh, the torture of captives at Abu Ghraib, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they, and again, it happened just sort of, that's what was happening in my life at that moment I was writing. And then those two things, and there's, you know, other things that come in that sort of, you know, feed those things. Like Adrian Rich has this quote that, you know, when you're in the middle of a project, it's like a meteor shower all the time, constant bombardments. Um, and it, it sort of becomes like that when a project comes. And that's why I, I kind of resist projects right now, um, just because you, you, I really get caught up in them. They, they sort of become like you're in the middle of a storm. And uh, it's probably not I'm probably not so a, a great a partner when I'm in the depth of a project. Um, so I try to that's why I try to with this book, I tried to put it down for long periods of time just to not be in the book to be just in life, you know, whatever that is. I think you got to ventilate. I mean, I think if you're, I can see how it could become like suffocating or you could wind up just screwing it up almost if you, if you stayed with it too long and, mm. uh, were face to face with it for months on end. Yeah. Just and psychically just to recharge, just to like, you know, this is, this book was really probably the hardest book I've written, uh, psychically. It really went into some, uh, places that, you know, that I'd been sort of denying, you know, you know, like, like really opening like a lot of doors, uh, that I hadn't, uh, opened for. I didn't know if they even existed, some of the doors, or I just denied they existed. Um, and, you know, or you had never had any intention of opening any doors for these doors. So I just sort of opened all the doors and, you know, I, I really had to take care of myself in the midst of that. So, you know, I had to do a lot of therapy, a lot of 12-step work, a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga, a lot of meeting with friends and talking. And, you know, there was a lot I had to do to prepare myself psychically to write the book. And it was like, not just like once, it was like daily, you know, I had to do these things. So That's interesting to hear you say that. I, I don't think that gets said enough in terms of drafting um, a book, particularly one that's really difficult and deals with a lot of pain, like personal... Um, suffering that if you don't have a system in place uh like a relational system outside of the context of whatever little hovel you're writing in uh you're giving yourself extra work or you're you might even be preventing yourself from getting the best work done like it's essential to have some balance or, or you might even you know destroy yourself um i don't think that you know writing about your deepest truths is not necessarily cathartic for you it could be it could destroy you uh it's uh you know you need to take care of yourself and you know spiritually psychically physically emotionally in order to be 
in shape to do that work. It's like really dangerous work, I think. You know, I think it's very, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're going to go, and that's that's our job, at least, you know, in the the writing that I sort of do and admire, it just feels like that's the um, that's the the job of it is is to push into these really places that other people have a hard time like going to, you know, uh, and for and and for for good reasons. And I, I protected myself from, you know, the story of my mother setting our house on fire for like <laughs> 50 years. You know, I didn't, you know, I was not ready to look at that. You know, I had to be, you know, I had to take a long time to look at that. You know, so. Yeah, I know. And it's amazing, too, how we can deny things to ourselves, even if we are writers and we pride ourselves on our clear vision, you know, and our ability to stay with tough emotions and all this stuff. Even then, like it can be amazing what we hide from ourselves and how we sort of sidestep the the real thing, even though it's kind of sitting right there. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was humbling to 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 to, to realize like, that I had just come up with a story to contain something that was incomprehensible to me as a child. You know, I just come up with a, a way to sort of go through life, which I think we all do, you know, like there's things that happen that are just like people do things that are, you know, uh, you know, very hurtful and uh, you can either take it in and be a victim or you can sort of just transform it into a comprehensible story. And uh, you know, uh, so I, I think I, I did that for a long time. And I think it's, and I think it's okay to do that too. I don't think I, I never encourage my writers to, you know, I encourage them to sort of get to the edge of it, to get as close as they can to it. And then to like, but then go and take care of yourself for a while. But, you know, think of your work as, you know, as a body of work. Uh, my dear friend, Jacqueline Woodson, when I when we first met, which was like 30 years ago now, she was a couple of years younger than me and I hadn't published anything. And she had already published a couple of books and, uh, she said, well, she's, she's creating a body of work. And I just, I was just like a body of, work. I'm trying to write like a poem. Like you're you know, <laughs> like, like I, I, I'm having a hard time writing a poem. And she was just like, yeah. And, and, but it really sort of took that in. She has, she's created an amazing body of work. And, um, you know, I realized like each book, you don't have to do everything in each book. You don't have to like turn over every stone. You, you sort of do what you can do, uh, and do it as well as you can do it. And, and, push into it as deeply as you can at that moment. That's all you can do. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm wondering because of the nature of, of your body of work and this mode that you work in and this, this sort of deep excavation that you do of self and, um, how much courage it takes to reveal the darkest and most difficult parts of yourself on the page and put it out there. I'm wondering if like upon finishing either this book or another of your books, if you've ever thought to yourself, like, I think for my next book, I'm just going to write like a fantastical novel about like wizards. And <laughs> does that ever occur to you? Do you ever have that like thought, like thought, even if it's fleeting? Oh, no, I always, <laughs> I always want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to just have a little, little romp. And I think I've even tried it, but it doesn't come out too well. Like, it's just not my mode. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I've, I've been given like commissions to write things that are, you know, that are very like not, um, you know, ostensibly they don't have to be, they could be just fun pieces. You know, I wrote a piece, <laughs> there's a piece in um, the new book and and this is the night our house will catch fire uh, near the end that I wrote for an anthology. And they just asked like, uh, it's called what I ate. And I think it might be the last, one of the last pieces in the book. And I wrote it for this anthology. And uh, the anthology was just about writers writing about 
recipes they liked. And, you know, mine came out like, it just came out so twisted. It came out like just eating, you know, you know, eating cottage cheese and potato chips from like mini marts. Like that was my recipe. It was like, you know, like in the, in the year after my mother died, just like, like, you know, not eating. And just the only food I ate was like from mini marts and just, but I was a vegetarian. So I would just go and get cottage cheese and potato chips and just eat that for like a year. And, you know, I lost like 40 pounds. Like I was just like, and that was the recipe. Those are my recipes. I'm like, and they, they published it. I mean, they put it in the anthology. So I think other people actually made a little more elaborate recipes, I think. Right. I'm not sure if anyone's may, maybe copying you on that one, but yeah, it's a good though. I, I actually went back to it recently. It's actually still quite good. I did it. You can't go wrong with potato chips. I don't. I. I cottage di- cheese, I, though. Cut, like, I know. I diverge at cottage cheese. I can't do cottage cheese. <laughs> well, you know, give it a try. All right. You know, maybe I need to branch out. But <laughs> uh, I want to ask you too about what it's like to relate to your readers and also just your your friends. Um, you know, people who read you, and especially if they read your full body of work they really get to know you and they have a level of intimacy with you that you definitely don't have with them. So I'm imagining over the years, because you confess so much in your books and are so intimate in your books that your readers come up to you with like this strong sense of familiarity um, and understanding of you that you, uh, you know, you can't reciprocate. Can you talk about managing that? Because that, I think, is something that I haven't heard a lot of people on this show, anyway, talk about uh, who work in this kind of autobiographical mode. Sure. Um, one thing, you know, my friends, you sort of said my friends get to know me very intimately, and I, but I know them very intimately, too. I, I, don't, really, I don't really have friends that we just sort of, like, uh, shoot the shit or something. You know, we, you know, we do at some points, but, you know, the whole point of friendships for me is to really – uh, you know, be intimately connected. Uh, so I, f- I feel like, you know, I know them as much as they know me. Uh, but then strangers coming up. Yeah. Like, you know, readings when I first, um, when I first read from another bullshit night in suck city, uh, I was terrified because I felt like I was just exposing like this really, you know, just, just, you know, even at that point, which has been quite a few years after my father had been homeless, it still felt like this, it still it, it still shook me to have to tell a stranger to if it came up in a conversation, oh, what'd your <laughs> what'd your father do? And like, oh, he was a street alcoholic. Um, you know, it didn't. You know, it was it was still hard. But so I wrote this book, and and then I, I realized very quickly, uh, and my wife really helped me too because she had been sort of in in the public for longer than I had, and uh, uh, that. And your your wife is Lily Taylor, the yeah, actress. Yeah, 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 yeah Lily and. Uh, Lily told me that um, uh, like I, I was confused by the questions that I was being asked, like in a Q&A, like someone would say, well, you know, how does it feel to write a, a book where you've made people very angry? And uh, I'd be like, oh, and I just I'd, I'd be I say I, I answered that was like my first big reading. I said, well, I are you, are you working on a book and you're afraid it's going to make people angry? And she was like, how do you know that? I'm like, well because I have a lot of problems. That's just not one of them. That's like, that's not one of my problems. Like, so, and Lily sort of pointed out to me that like, basically my job or our job as artists is to create a scrim that others can project themselves upon. Like they're not really reading my memoir to find out about me. They're reading to find out about themselves. And they're trying to find the connection with that. Like, Oh, that 
I, you know, my father, I also had this thing with my father. I also couldn't understand why my father did this or why my mother did this or why I do this. You know, they're, they're trying to understand themselves. They don't really give a fuck about you. Can we swear on this? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah they don't, which is okay with me. It's, it's really fine. Like I, and once I sort of understood that, it became a lot more freeing. Like my whole job was to create this scrim and the this, this scrim is to be as, you know, to, to reveal as much of the complexity of what it is to be human uh, as possible. And then other people would be like, Oh, you can say that? Like you can, you can talk about that. And it's, but it's not about me. So I, you know, I used to say like, you know, from the first book, you know, people feel like they really know me, but they only know what I've chosen to let them know. But now I've written four memoirs, so they they kind of do know everything. I mean, there's not much more left um, at this point, especially with a new book. It's like it's kind of all on the table. Uh, I don't know what else I could do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, but I still believe that I still believe that's the point of it is like not to. And some people obviously won't relate to it. I mean, but. I find with just anything that has like mom and dad in it, like everyone sort of is wrestling with mom and dad, you know, like kind of, and my books, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, even, even, yeah, all the books sort of, I'm wrestling with mom and dad in all the memoirs really. So, yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think you talk about readers being able to relate and being able to project themselves and their own experiences onto the scrim that you've created, even for a reader, uh, like me who d did not grow up with, uh, a, father who struggled with uh, alcoholism or you know a mother who committed suicide like I didn't have anything similar I could still relate and yeah. I think I could relate at the level of like self-mythologizing and the mythology of childhood and the fickleness and fascination that I have with those memories you know the, the, I'm, I'm always fascinated by what sticks and I think for somebody who works in memoir y you must be as well uh, I don't know how great your recall is mine is really spotty and uh, I just like to tell myself that whatever it is that remains is the good stuff. <laughs> and that's what I need because I don't have, you know, my wife can remember anything. She can, like, remember what she wore to school on a Tuesday in high school. You know, I'm just like, I cannot even begin to remember hardly the people that I knew in high school, let alone, what you know, those kinds of details. But um, I don't know. I, I just find that, you know, your work um, – functions really well on that level and you do such a good job of of creating uh, i don't know like the, the framework of that self-mythology and then as you said earlier and this is something i kind of want to go more deeply into is this notion of writers who work in an autobiographical mode and who go into the pain uh you know who go where the pain is and and slow down uh that is tough stuff, but I think it is necessary work. And I guess I'm curious to know if there are writers that you look to as models, um, you know, when you were setting about to write another bullshit night or any of your books, um, is there a tradition that you feel you're working in? Are there writers that you look to as heroes in this regard? Uh, I mean, yeah, I have a lot of writers that have helped me in so many ways. Um, you know, that I know or that I just have read, uh, you know, I just thought of, you know, Jacqueline Woodson reading her from, you know, she wrote mostly young adult things from uh, for a long time. Then she's written some some novels uh, since then. And she, she really goes into her childhood. She actually, you know, does have like uh, memories of her childhood and her, you know, that's probably how we bonded when we were, you know, 30 years ago, just from, you know, 
she grew up African-American and with, you know, her father being missing and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, very different childhood. She grew up, you know, between the South and Ohio and Brooklyn and, uh, and, but then other people I've just met along the way, just people that are, you know, craftsmen, like think of like a writer like Joanne Beard, like, like just the precision of her language and how she can take like a moment, an emotional moment and just like, just stay with it, like move through it so, uh, uh, precisely, but also strangely. So you really capture this, the, the emotional energy. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly, the thing that seems hardest to me is capturing emotional energy, navigating emotional energy. Um, I like what you said about, uh, the things that, that stick or something. Like, I, I, I agree with that too. Like when I'm, I just, I just trust those moments that the, 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 the slightest little moment that I remember, I'll just sort of like, you know, just start to play with that to play with that moment a little bit on the page and, and let it and see what comes from it. It may generally, it leads to something, you know, it's like a thread that leads to something. I don't know what I would do if I was like your wife and just remembered everything. Cause there'd be too, <laughs> too many threads. There'd be too many threads. Like there'd be too many like things to pull. Like, um, but I don't have that at all. I'm, I'm similar to you. And maybe it's a guy thing or something. We just sort of like a program, like not to remember or something, but, uh, I like, yeah, I also had very few memories, but you know, other writers too. I mean, I've, there's been so many books that are important, you know, Rebecca Solnit's like a field guide to getting lost was just like really important to me. Uh, you know, at a certain points, um, Dorothy Allison's bastard out of Carolina, like, you know, that's a novel, but it has this feel of like, you know, she wrote trash after that, but it has this feel of just this genuine, like, like voice coming from a voice we hadn't heard before. Uh, you know, I was always like a huge, it's, it's so great now. I was always a huge Baldwin fan. And so great that he's like just everywhere. You can't every day, you're just reading more Baldwin. And, uh, when I was in, when I was in college as an undergraduate in an, as an English major, my mother died, um, uh, uh, in the fall, like just before the semester ended and I had to drop out of school. Um, and then the next semester Baldwin came and taught there. And that was like my one regret. I mean, I, but I, I was, in such bad shape, I couldn't get back for Baldwin even. That was like, I had this chance to study with Baldwin. And yeah, and it just like, you know, like, like mind bending. And, you know, at that point, he was just a god to me. Uh, and, and, I, but I, I, <laughs> I guess I had to respect how, what, what, uh, fragile shape I was in because I couldn't, I just couldn't even do that. So, um, so yeah, so many people. I mean, but a lot of it's poetry also because I do, you know, I still primarily identify as a poet. So, uh, you know, there's just so many poets. My friend, uh, Marie Howe just brought me back from the hospital, uh, up here. Um, and, and uh, by the way, I don't think we got this on tape. Like you are just, you're dealing with some sort uh, of a uh, tick-borne parasite. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I just threw that in. Yeah. No, the mental hospital. They just, no, um, <laughs> yeah, no, they, uh, yeah, I, I, I was just, I've been sick for a couple of weeks, like really quite ill. Like it turns out with like malaria, like symptoms with, but it turned out to be a bug, a, a tick-borne infection called babesiosis, uh, uh, um, and it's like uh, it attacks the red blood cells. It's, so it's similar to, to malaria. Uh, uh, so I just got out of the hospital. Just <laughs> well, I was in the hospital this morning. I emailed you, I think, to say like I'm not sure if I'm going to be out in time. Yeah, uh, it was like a great. It was like a great series of emails. You're like I'm in the hospital with a tick-borne parasitic illness. I'm not sure if I'm going to get out. And then I think the next email was like, I'm out. Let's do this. Yeah. So I was like, All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's yeah. a first on the, that's a first on this program i think yeah hopefully the last it was it's just been no fun <laughs> you don't want to get this well in california that's the thing if i if i was in california i got this i'd probably be dead because you guys don't know how to, what it is uh you guys don't have tick stuff out there not like, yet i was no. tell, i think i was telling you before we came on like we're starting to get mosquitoes and i'm like i don't know what's yeah. happening that didn't used to be the case so the, the tick thing is profound here it's like it, it it'll it'll kill you like this thing is the size of a sesame seed. It's so tiny. And you, you don't even know. You just look. You just think you have a little piece of dirt on you. And you're like, what is that? And then like suddenly, suddenly like, oh, my God, I'm fucked. When I, was, uh, when I was just out of college, my listeners will always laugh because I talk about this too much on the show. But I hiked the Appalachian Trail. So I spent time out there. And I had this big, huge beard after a while. And I had my dog with me. Uh, so we're out there in those woods. And ticks were everywhere. And I remember waking up in my tent in the night and I could feel them j- jumping on my face and I would get up and just like pull the, uh, so gross. And, but, you know, you, be, you become hypersensitive because I didn't want to get Lyme disease. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're, it's bad. That's, that's impressive though. Hike, you, you hiked the whole trail? No, I did. Uh, it was like three months after uh, I graduated college. So I did about 1,100 miles. That's um, impressive. That is impressive. That's a dream. I always, want, I always wanted to do that. That's impressive. Yes, there's still time. I mean, you know, it's uh, I kind of want to do. I would love to do the whole thing, do it or do the PCT and go end to end. I, I dream about it. Physically, I don't know. I mean, we'll see how how I how I'm doing. You know, by the time I get to a place where I possibly could, I might be too old. But yeah. um, you know, if there were people out there, if I remember being out there and there there were guys in their 60s and 70s who were hiking, so yeah, just depends how uh, you know, what, what kind of pain tolerance you have. <laughs> Uh, it's definitely difficult and, you know, you're out there in the elements. So, <laughs> uh, so I want to talk to you about, you talked a little bit earlier about how you work and how you're in like, you know, generating material mode. Uh, can you drill down into that a little bit more for listeners who might be wondering like how Nick puts his books together? Uh, it sounds like you let yourself be pretty free in the early drafts. You're not policing yourself too much. Is it just pen to page? Are you counting words? Are you working for a set time every day? Is it that disciplined? Like, what does it actually look like in terms of nuts and bolts? Well, it, each book is different. So I'll just talk about the last book because um, each book has a different, whole, completely different process and structure and, and uh, uh, you know, time I write. Um, so with, with this book, it really... Uh, it really sort of it snuck up on me. It was actually during a time when people would ask me like what I, what I was writing. I'd said like, well, I'm not writing. I'm I'm, I'm taking a break from writing. And uh, what that turned out to mean was that I just wasn't like living in a book constantly. I wasn't always like like you know trying to figure out the next scene. Like while I'm sitting at dinner with my family, or uh, and I just I, so I did I did let it happen more and. I, I had mentioned earlier that a lot of it, maybe all of it was written. I, I teach these workshops and sometimes I teach like th- at least three a summer. Like I'll teach at the fine arts work center. I'll teach at this place called the Omega Institute. Uh, maybe someplace else. Um, one, maybe last summer I might've taught six of these things. And I've developed this process, this writing process where it, it involves meditation uh, where we, you know, if it's a three hour session, uh, like every day for five days, like we'll meditate for a, a brief amount of time and then write for a brief amount of time, like in each of those hours. 
and then sort of like do stuff around that work and then do it again and then do it again and would generate a lot of material that way. And, you know, there'll, there'll always be like, it'll usually be like you, you, you've brought in a few pages or something. You look for those like things that jump out at you, those like resonant lines, things that have energy and you'll take those and those will be like your starter, uh, with these exercises. But the meditation is what gets you to the right place to write. Um, so meditation is a huge part of my process and it has been for a long time, but and now for the last like 10 years, I don't teach a workshop without meditating with the students. Um, I don't, I don't, I think it's a waste of time, uh, for me cause it gets you to that place like so much faster, like a brief, you know, I do like these seven minute meditations and seven minute writings and the writing that comes out of those is like just sort of really surprising. You know, you try to write as fast as you can when you come out of it and you have a structure that you're writing within, which is based on those resonant lines that you've taken from your own work mostly or from other places. Uh, so you generate a lot of work that way. And then we take all that and, uh, like on the fourth day, we take everything we generate, which is usually like 20 or 30 pages at that point, and we go in and then try to call out what is resonant from what we wrote, So, but big chunks of language that have some sort of energy to them. And we'll sort of literally cut them out with scissors and and uh, and arrange them into these patterns. Like we'll sort of see, oh, there's like, this is all about my mother, or this is all about the moon, or this is about, you know, an ocean. And we'll sort of... Uh, We'll have these things and then we'll spend uh, time like trying to create like an associative narrative out of those pieces. Uh, and, you know, and this is all done like in a, a day, like you sort of do it as quickly as you can. You try to do it without faster than you can think. And then then you go back and then you spend the next like um, uh, two or three months like trying to make sense of what you just did. And mm. uh and usually that'll turn out to be, that might be uh, a chapter in a book. It might end up just being two pages. Sometimes when I did this, like it, it had a lot of energy. It ended up being like five chapters. Like my chapters are relatively short, but it ended up sort of breaking into like, there's a whole section in the book that's like, you know, five chapters from one of these five day uh, things. It just sort of kept, they all speak to each other, but they didn't make sense to have it all in one piece. So uh, that's that's the way this book came together. And, and you know, other people, you know, it's, it's pretty disorienting for the, students but a lot of my students take my workshop many you know they, they keep taking the workshop because it it sort of keeps generating stuff but the the new folks that come are pretty disoriented for the first couple of days <laughs> well i was just going to say do you ever run into resistance from students who are like i don't want to meditate or i don't want to you know i don't want to sit here and listen to my own head yeah i never have like i thought i would i was that's what i was afraid of like i don't want to be like a guru or something or like you know like be proselytizing so i just, I, I it's not about i don't teach meditation i just suggest that you it's going to be 7 minutes so i suggest you sit up straight you you have your feet flat in the ground and you have a slight smile on your face like i don't care if you keep your eyes open or closed or if you think thoughts or don't think thoughts like i don't really care and it and then, and then i just sort of do it in front of them and i just close my eyes and just i meditate i i can get to that space pretty quickly this sort of uh, that state, because uh, I meditate every day. Um, what kind of meditation do you do? Well, I, I've studied different meditation things. Um, I don't do like TM or anything, but uh, uh, I, I've studied Zen meditation. I've been part of like the San Francisco Zen Center uh, stuff. Uh, you know, they have like uh, they have like uh, places Zendos around the country. But I, I really got into it first from Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a you know. Uh, Me too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's a great writer. He's like one of my favorite writers. Yeah, I got to study with him like, you know, like like many times like in these retreats, these week-long retreats. 
uh, as very fortunate to be with him on a retreat the first time he came to America, uh, like which was in like the late eighties. Uh, oh, wow. And he hadn't done it. And he was like, he was, I mean, those books he wrote now are like really like American user-friendly. Back then he was a freak. Like he wrote these things that were just like, like about like quantum physics and like blowing your mind. It was like, it's about, right. you know, I have these, I have these handouts from him from that time that are just like, you know, meditations on death. And you're like, you know, you breathe in, you see your body turning purple on a ground, breathing out, you smile at your body turning purple. Like, I mean, it's not like, the, it's not like, you know, the flower has the sun in it and shit like that. It's like, it's, right, like, right. it's like really heavy, weird stuff. Uh, but then I think someone sort of told him you should probably like save that, you know, the right. Americans can't handle it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It might, might freak people out at the weekend yeah. retreat or whatever. I, I loved it, man. He brought all these Vietnam vets with him that time, um, which, you know, I have, I have, relationship to Vietnam and Vietnam vets. My stepfather was a vet. Uh, and, uh, so he's in, he's in the book, the ticking is the bomb. He's in, I think all the books, uh, my stepfather. Um, was it Vernon? Yeah. That's not his real name, but yeah, he's Vernon. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he's in the film. Um, and, uh, he's a great guy, but he was very PTSD. You know, he had a lot of stuff and just like Thich Nhat Hanh really helped me like to, to work with him and to become, very compassionate with him because uh, he was a pretty scary guy when I was a kid. Uh, and now we, you know, we became like really close, uh, you know, after you, you and your stepfather. Yeah. 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 You know, he, he sort of vanished after not a long time when he was with us. He wasn't my stepfather. I mean, he never adopted us or anything. So, but he was my mother's second husband. Um, but, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh brought all these vets with him, like, like, on the, on the retreat and they were just, they were like my stepfather. They were just wild. They were just these wild guys that had to stay like, this is a real like Zen, you know, holistic center that was very peaceful and meditative and yoga. -y. And they just had to put them way in the woods. Like, cause they were just like howling all night. And, but they hadn't been with a Vietnamese person since the war. And they were just like, you know, had a really profound experience. And the writer, uh, I remember at that first retreat, the writer, um, uh, Maxine, Maxine Hong Kingston, Maxine Hong Kingston. Yeah. Um, and she, uh, yeah. So it was just, you know, she, I mean, she was one of my favorite writers and she was there. She was just there at this like small retreat. There was like a couple hundred people. Like now it'd be like a thousand people, but was it, it was, at Blue Cliff? Was it at Blue Cliff monastery or no, it's before he got Blue Cliff. He, he, he really had just came to America as the first time. Oh, right. Yeah. So he, he was at Omega, the Omega Institute where I also teach now. Um, and, uh, she ended up going on working with vets for the next, like, the rest of her life. She ended up doing all these anthologies and writings with them and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Little tangent there. Little tangent. No, I'm like, I've, I don't think I've ever, cause like one of my great regrets, like I had tickets to go see Thich Nhat Hanh speak and I had for years been listening to him on my morning walks. Like that was just my, I mean, I still, I did it this morning. I literally wow. did it this morning on yeah. a, on a walk. So like he's been in my head for years and years. I read his books. I think he's, um, a very yeah. gifted writer. Like I think I, as a literary person, I love his work because there's such like an incredible clarity to it and poetic precision, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is often missing from books about that sort of stuff. I can find it uh, like sort of, uh, frustrating to read when it mm -hmm. doesn't have that. So I just have great admiration for him and I had tickets to go see him, but then we had to leave town. I forget why it was like a funeral or a wedding or something. You know, I had no choice but to go. So I had to give the tickets away and then he had a stroke and I, I didn't get to ever spend time in his company, but he's uh he's a giant to me. 
Yeah, he's, he's on the wall right behind us, I realized. That image on the wall behind us was penned by his hand. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, did you actually get to talk with him? You have to indulge my Thich Nhat Hanh geeking um, out here for a second. <laughs> I mean, not really. Not like he wasn't like you didn't really talk to him, but you, you just sort of you went to Dharma talks with him. You would then you would meet in small groups with like another monk and sort of have Dharma talks with them. Uh, I mean, I'm, we probably like bowed to each other. I think, you know, it, it wasn't a big group. I walked next to him like, you know, but it wasn't, you know wasn't like you had you weren't like just like powwowing in his no yeah I, you know I, I mean I, it was like when i did that i was like you know about uh probably like six months sober i mean i was like you know i wasn't like the shiniest stone in the river you know at that right, right 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 <laughs> but still not a bad thing to do and i think too like i've often thought because i listen to these talks that he'll give at retreats and you can sort of hear the audience and a lot of the recordings are from I think when he was at the the peak, you know, these last few years before he became ill, when, you know, thousands of people were turning out for his retreats and his talks and everything, is I always wondered, even when it was at a smaller scale, when you're somebody like him and you're that powerful of a teacher, how do you manage the interactions with people uh, in those contexts? With Because you know, I'm imagining everybody wants to have like... 45 minutes with him to sit down and go over their problems and everything. And he just can't do it. I think they solve that just because it's a silent retreat. So you're not going to talk to anyone. <laughs> right, 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 right. He wasn't, he wasn't hanging. Yeah. You don't talk for the whole week. You know, you have like a, a brief moment where you, I think you meet with a, uh, a monk for like, you know, half an hour or something. I mean, that's when you talk, it's like, you know, and, and he wasn't like at lunch with us. He would, I think he'd go to, you know, he, he had, a, he had to conserve his energy, you know? So, uh, he would go and I think eat just with some other monks with Sister True Emptiness, which was his, uh, you know, right hand person. I love Sister Ch Sister Chan Kong or uh, I, I just her remember name? her name is Sister True Emptiness, okay. which I just loved. I love that name, so I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. I think I yeah. saw her at LAX once, mm -hmm. and I got I got so excited. I think that's like the only celebrity sighting I can even remember at LAX. Uh, <laughs> But it was Sister Chanko, but she was like a, kind of like half asleep at baggage claim, sitting next to another monk, and I didn't, I couldn't bring myself to go up. You know, I yeah. just I was like, okay, I'm just gonna let let myself have this moment. But um, I want to get back to your writing and the integration of meditation with writing because I've often I've been meditating for a long time, and I've often said that there's like a a lot of obvious crossover between the two practices. You know, just having to sit still in the company of crazy thinking or difficult emotions. And I have not, I, I have not though talked to anybody who has integrated it maybe as explicitly as you have into a teaching paradigm. And just so that I'm clear, like when you say that you have your students sit down and do a seven minute meditation and then like a seven minute or 10 minute free write, is this something that you, that you continue for the course of an hour or two? So is it like seven minutes on, seven minutes writing, seven minutes meditating, seven minutes writing? Like, how does it, no, how no, does no. it actually? Like, like it, that'd be like in each hour, you'd probably do that once. Uh, and then the other stuff, then they'd talk to each other. They would, we'd talk about aspects of writing. Maybe some people would read their work. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd do like uh, other things around it and figure out how to build on the next thing to get to the next thing. Oh, okay. So I, I wouldn't do it just, no, it's not, no, it's not just, that would be too much. Okay. Okay. I, I me, didn't know. I mean, maybe you could do that, but it, uh, it, that doesn't seem as, as effective 
Because at the end of that three hours, you'd have usually I write about two pages in those seven minutes, and you know, you get six pages written in like that little period of you know brand new work, which is just uh, kind of good, you know. So that's great. Six pages in three hours. I take that any day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's how you got this book done. Yeah. I think almost the whole book is written out of these workshops. Um, you know, so I got to thank a lot of the students cause, uh, it really was the energy of the group that helped it also. Um, uh, cause we also share like, you know, articles, like we'll bring in like science articles or articles on mysticism or we'll bring in like a, a page of a, you know, some, another memoir that like impresses us. Well, so we'll talk about those too. And so then we'll maybe, uh, take a line, a resident line from that and play with that a little bit too. So, uh, you know, some of the references in here are probably from, uh, some of the students I, you know, was with. So, hmm. and, and, uh, when you're, when you're in these workshops and you're, you're doing the meditation and then you do like the two pages of free writing, after that, do you share what you've written and talk about it with people in the workshop? My, my own work? Or what your students, like, you know what I'm saying? As part of the workshop process. Oh, like, yeah, they share it. Yeah, they, they always like share. The, after the writing, they, they, they pair up. So they always have time to like read their stuff. And I usually go around and listen to, or I'll pair up with someone else if it depends on the number of students, if it's an even or odd number. And I'll, or I'll go around and listen, eavesdrop on them while they're talking. They'll just talk for like five minutes total just like say how it went, you know, and then I will, um, and then I'll come back. If I heard something interesting, then I'll say like, yeah, anyone want to talk about what happened? And then, you know, maybe two or three people will talk about it, you know, so it won't be the whole group because otherwise it just takes too much time if everyone read everything they wrote, but everyone gets a chance to get feedback on everything they wrote. So, and do you find, uh, you're typically pretty able to locate the most resonant part on your own? Are there ever situations where if you're paired up with somebody, the person you're paired up with locates it faster than you or points out something that's resonant that you didn't necessarily respond to? Oh, yeah, always. Yeah, yeah, always. No, I'm not, I'm definitely not, you know, the the sharpest knife. No, I mean, you know, and and, and usually the beauty of it is even in those, two, you know, those, those seven minute writing things, I'm usually not, I haven't, most of the time, I'm not the one that's written, that's knocked it out of the park. Like, you know, usually it's like another student that maybe we haven't heard from will just like, you know, uh, maybe somewhat, um, you know, uh, cautiously raise their hand. Like I, I wrote something, you know, and then, you know, they'll read something and everyone will be like, oh, my God, like, where did that come from? You know, and I'll be like, well, that was like that was like blew me away, like way better than what I wrote. <laughs> you know, so. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I noticed, too, in in, uh, in the new book that you referenced Mark Epstein uh, a few yeah. times. I've read some of his books too. He's like, uh, he's an interesting guy in terms of the way that he's integrated psychotherapy with, uh, meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he came back to me. Um, I read him like 20 years ago, uh, a book thoughts without a thinker. Uh, my girlfriend at the time sort of, uh, uh, turned me on to him. And I, I, I thought that book was really great because I'd, I'd already been doing some meditation and it sort of brought in this other level of meditation, you know, the psychoanalysis. And, um, and then like when I was working on this book, which is, you know, has a lot of, uh, you know, it's sort of an examination of trauma in some ways, um, or in a lot of ways, uh, another friend said like, Oh, Mark Epstein has a, a book, you know, the, the, the trauma of everyday life. And I was like, and I sort of had forgotten about Mark Epstein. It was a really great book and I didn't really follow him. And 
realized they had written other books. And so I, I, then I was like, oh, he was so important to me 20 years ago. And then I read his other book. And then it turned out my friend who recommended him, like that, that is, he's her therapist. And I was like, what? Like you get to, you get to, he's your therapist? Like, right. But I have my own really good therapist, so I didn't, you know, I didn't jump ship. So. Oh, see, I was, I mean, I didn't want to ask because it just didn't seem germane, but I was like, Dr. Me is Dr. Epstein. I was trying to make some sort of connection. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dr. Me is a clever, is a clever pseudonym for a therapist. I like that. <laughs> and then Bessel, was it Bessel Vanderkolk? Am, am I getting that name? Yeah, Bessel Vanderkolk, yeah. Yeah, you reference and and forgive me. I don't. Is that a he? Is that a she? I'm it's trying a, it's to. It's a he. It's a he. It's yeah. a, it's a he. Yeah, but he's he's very influential around um, the study of trauma. Yeah, he has a book, uh, "The Body Keeps the Score," which I first saw. You know, I fly back and forth to Houston every spring, and I was on the plane, and there was this real military-looking young guy, and he was reading a book, and I we started talking, and he showed me the book, and he talked about it. It's like this guy who was back from. The war, uh, you know, probably early 20s, and he was reading this book, The Body Keeps the Score, and I was just like, that sounds really interesting, and that's the first time I heard about him, and uh, mm. uh, and and, and, it was a, and it was a military guy, military guy, yeah, reading this book, and it's like, it's a beautiful book, it's like, you know, it's about how trauma is held in the body, and uh, he works with uh, vets a lot, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, and, and with PTSD stuff, and so, you know, part of my book is, you know, there's moments where I felt in the writing of this book that I was uh, in a PTSD, uh, state. So, hmm, I bet. And so, um, you know, I'm going to let you go soon. Cause I know you're recovering from a parasitic <laughs> illness I don't, and you've been with the flu for like I, two weeks or I, whatever. So I was, I was, you know, wheeled out of a hospital in a wheelchair this morning, you know, just, to get, just to get here, just to get here to this. Well, you've been incredibly uh, energetic and, uh, kind to spend this time considering, you know, your morning, but I do want to ask you, uh, one last question about the composition of your book, um, perhaps like a bit selfishly, because I'm doing something similar in my own work, and that is how to write about family. Um, it's one thing to expose yourself on the page. It's another thing to expose your wife, your child, to write about them, to try to figure out if they're going to be okay with it. I think a lot of writers out there who might be thinking of or who are working in an autobiographical mode come up against this. Like, what is my obligation here? And can you talk about those decision-making processes and how they work for you? Sure. Um, you know, my, my first books were was a little easier about my father because uh, he, you know, he was pretty delusional at that point. And, uh, but I learned a lot from writing that book because in the beginning of it, I, I really had no compassion for him. Like I didn't, um, you know, I was really angry with him and, and really sort of like, it was like, oh, he's just a, such a fuck up. And in order to write the book, I had to, I realized that at a certain point I had to develop compassion for him and I had to, you know, try to understand him. I had compassion for other homeless people, but I didn't have really that any for my father. And I, part of my whole project, my whole job of writing that book was to find compassion for my father. And I, and I did, I ended up by the end of the seven years it took to write that book, I ended up having, I had a relationship with my father, which was like, I would just want to go see him and we, we, you know, check in, even though he was still a pain in the ass, so I, but I, we had a relationship. Um, and so, I mean, that's like the main thing with anyone, with writing about anyone, and, you know, there's no memoir that doesn't have someone else in it. I mean, it's always, we're always interacting with other people. And some of those people are often 
people in your family. And some of those people will get upset if you write about it. my brother doesn't want to be written about that much. And so I don't put him in that much, you know, um, uh, you know, he, he that's just his, uh, his, his way. And it's not that my, you know, in this book, my wife, you know, has to be written about, but, you know, since it was wrestling with the affair and the, the effects of the affair, it sort of had to be a thread in the book. Um, and, uh, again, though, it's, it's really, is like just writing, you know, trying to be as open hearted and as compassionate as possible. And, uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I hope, you know, I'm not writing like some people would probably say, Oh, if you don't piss anyone off, then you haven't done your job. But I, that's not really my, my take on it at all. It's like, you know, really just to, you know, try to, you know, be as, as, open to the experience. You know, I, I, I own a lot in this book. I own a lot of the, you know, things that, uh, I didn't, I, I don't, I don't even want to make a direct connection between, you know, a really direct connection. Like, you know, I had an affair because my mother set my house on fire like that. That to me doesn't seem true either. So I don't, I try not to do that either, but you know, I'm just trying to contain this psychic, uh, landscape of what it is to be, uh, you know, uh, human, uh, you know, and struggling with certain, uh, you know, really fundamental issues. Um, and people, people get involved, you know, like, you know, we're, my wife and I are doing really well. Uh, you know, my child is, you know, at some point my child will read this book and this, this book in some way is more of a letter to my child. I was going to say, I felt like emotionally that was probably the most moving thread in the book to me as a parent, you know, like I could feel you communicating with her across time almost. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, it even ends with that, like saying, if you're reading this now, you know, um, and it really was like, cause my mother, a big struggle I had with my mother is that she didn't want to talk about her childhood. I think it was really hard for her, her childhood. And she just wanted to like, you know, she was young, she was a teenager. And so she was just like, I just want to get it as far away from this as possible. So like I say in the book, like I never got to sort of see where, my mother grew up. I didn't, I didn't know the house she grew up in. I didn't know what it was like for her as a kid. I just knew it was just bad. And, uh, I wanted my daughter to see, I wanted my daughter to know what I was like as a kid. And she was interested. She was asking questions. And so it just seemed like this perfect opportunity to bring her back to my hometown and to show her the house I grew up in and to show her the marsh I crossed and to show her Mr. Man's house. And, um, and then, you know, she'll make of it what she will, you know, she'll have just more information and more like, uh, She'll understand who she is, you know, where she's from. So I think that's so important. I think that's so important. And it's a gift because I don't have enough of it from my grandparents. Not that they withheld, but just because, you know, they didn't write anything and they didn't get, you know, they didn't have uh, recording equipment sitting around the house or whatever it is. But uh, it, yeah. sure, it sure would be nice, you know, not just that generation, but going back through the the centuries mm -hmm. ancestrally, how much how much deeper uh, and more grounded a sense of self I might have if I really had a stronger sense of the people that I came from. So much of it is a mystery. Well, and also like in this book too, it's also about how, you know, the good stuff gets passed on through generations and also the trauma gets passes on, gets passed on. And, you know, you get to, if you know what it is, like early on, you get to sort of, uh, um, know that that's what you need to work on. You need to look out for that. You know, and you get to sort of, you know, you probably won't be perfect in it, but you'll be maybe be able to sort of heal it a little bit, you know, generation generationally, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Uh, congrats on the book. 
I'm glad you're on the rebound, and uh, I'll let you get back to, I guess, bed rest. It's like, what are you going to do? Just hydrate and lie down. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much about to fall over right now. But, uh, but Brad, this has been really great. Thank you so much. All right, folks, there you go. That is Nick Flynn, and his new memoir is called This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. It is available Right now, from W.W. Norton and Company, it is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Nick Flynn online. His website is nickflynn.org. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle there is at underscore Nick underscore Flynn. This is the night our house will catch fire. The new memoir by Nick Flynn, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. Go get your copy. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you want to join the book club, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. The Other People podcast is offered freely. More than 667, or no, I guess it's 667 episodes now. All of them are available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen regularly, support the show. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also get other people gear. The t-shirts are really good. Like, I'm kind of a t-shirt snob. I found really good t-shirts. They're different than the t-shirts that that uh, went out, you know, over the past year or two. These are soft you can get a sweatshirt, get a t-shirt, get a tank top even. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, and click on the uh, the apparel link in the left sidebar. You'll see a t-shirt. Just click on the t-shirt. Get a t-shirt. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, too, that this show has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Get the app. Available where you get apps. All right, Emerson Whitney coming up next on the program. Next episode, Emerson Whitney. Stay tuned for that one. Don't forget to vote. Register to vote. Please. (laughs) 